Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps rolling. Hello, everyone. This is Rumble with Michael Moore. And I'm Michael Moore. Thank you very much uh, for tuning in uh, today to my podcast. We are going to talk about prisons in America. We're going to say things that maybe haven't been said too much, certainly not in the mainstream media, but uh, things that need to be said and information that we need to share with you to correct a very serious problem. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we spoke about my idea, not really, just mine. I mean, lots of people are calling for this. Lots of people, in fact. The Department of Public Safety and Compassion, that's the way I put it, that we need in order to make the changes we need to make regarding the police systems that we have here in America that are not right, are not humane, and do not work. And today, I want to talk about the prison industrial complex and why that isn't working and what we need to do to fix that. So I have a great guest on, a scholar and a professor from the University of Washington who has spent years of his life working on this issue of mass incarceration. And um, so I hope uh, you stick with me here. Lots of things going on in the news this week. I know the, I, <laughs> I don't know where to begin. I'll just say that the fact that the new prime minister in Israel has resumed the bombing of uh, Gaza, of uh, the civilian Palestinian population. And uh, I thought, well, you know, would somebody just be firing these uh, crazy little missiles into Israel? No, no, no missiles being fired at uh, Israel. Uh, the, the reason they gave was that the Palestinians were letting uh, balloons go up in the air and that they, uh, they would then pop and they would uh, rain some kind of fiery device on wherever they, the balloon landed. So I hadn't heard this one before. Palestinians with balloons. Uh, it's a new form of terrorism that uh, we have not seen yet. Uh, we should have thought of it. We should have prepared for it. We should have known about this, that whenever you have Palestinians around in any kind of uh, gathering or uh, whatever, that uh, sooner or later the balloons come out. They, uh, Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims, you know, they get the balloons going and all hell breaks loose and uh, the kind of danger we're in. Of course, I don't mean to make light of any of this. But a nuclear power, once again bombing a civilian population, one of the poorest strips of land on the planet Earth, because according to the Israelis, uh, balloons were being sent up in the air and drifting over Israel to rain havoc uh, down on the Israeli population. My friends, when does it end? When, 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 this insanity. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. (laughs) We're going to talk about the U.S. of A. and why we lock up 2.3 million people in prison and have millions more involved in the uh, prison industrial complex that we have in this country. But before we do that, and before we bring on our guest, I just want to thank our underwriter today, 
uh, for this episode. And our underwriter today is Netflix and their wonderful documentary series called Pretend It's a City. I don't know if you all have seen this yet. It's uh, directed by the great Martin Scorsese, and it follows his friend and fellow consummate New Yorker, Fran Lebowitz. Uh, this is, I've, I've watched the series. It is incredible. It is, it is funny. It's smart. It's witty. Uh, it's, it's everything you wish uh, we had on television in this country. Uh, and, and yet, once again, um, Netflix is bringing us things that we oftentimes don't get to see in other places. So I'm, I'm so grateful to Netflix for wanting to support my podcast and my voice and the voice of other people, especially our nonfiction uh, filmmakers. Um, not only is this, by the way, Pretend is a City, it's not only directed by Scorsese, it's, it, the cinematography is by Emmy Award winner Ellen Curtis, by the way, who filmed for me at one point uh, back in the day. Great cinematographer. And it's edited by Emmy Award nominee David Tedeschi. And David was uh, one of our editors back on our old uh, TV series, TV Nation. So Scorsese hasn't worked for me yet, but I'm just saying these other two have. And <laughs> this is such a great series, my friends. If all of us need a good laugh and, and we need our brains recharged from the fog of the last year or so, uh, watching Pretend It's a City is the way to do this. And the episodes, too, they're maybe 30 minutes, if that. They go by so quick. I hope they do more of this because it was a high point of, of the year for me. And now to have them come on and offer to be an underwriter of Rumble, man, thank you for that. So for all of you listening to this, do yourself a favor. Watch Pretend It's a City on Netflix. I'll have the link on the description page of uh, this episode here of my podcast, so you can just click on it. And I want to thank again Netflix for supporting my voice, for supporting this podcast, and supporting independent cinema and all kinds of nonfiction works of beauty, like Pretend It's a City. So, Let's get on with uh, today's subject matter and our guest, Dan Berger is his name. He's been studying, teaching, and writing about America's system of mass incarceration for several years. He's a professor of comparative ethnic studies at the University of Washington. His writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Dissent Magazine, Truthout, Salon, uh, among other publications. And his books include Rethinking the American Prison Movement that he co-authored with Toussaint Lossier, Captive Nation, Black Prison Organizing in the Civil Rights Era, and The Struggle Within, Prisons, Political Prisoners, and Mass Movements in the United States. He is also the co-creator of the Washington Prison History Project. It's a digital archive of prisoner activism and prison policy in the state of Washington. And I am very pleased to welcome Dan Berger to Rumble. Dan, how are you? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me. No, thank you very much for, you know, I've been, I've been for the last couple of weeks, I started my own little project here because I thought it was around the um, anniversary of George Floyd's murder. And of course, the TV networks, everybody turned everything over to, you know, the first anniversary. And literally a week later, there's no continuing discussion of how we need, 
what we need to do about police departments, uh, prisons, etc. And I thought, okay, we, we have to, at least on my podcast, this is one of our, at least for the remainder of this year, because I don't want this to go on any longer. Uh, we are going to talk about this in a number of ways. And so I just started out a couple of weeks ago by proposing that we essentially get rid of police departments as we know them and instead establish in towns, neighborhoods, cities, precincts, uh, something that I called the Department of Public Safety and Compassion. And and that when we say public safety, we're not just talking about, you know, uh, you know me walking down the street or the stuff in my house that I don't want anybody taking. Um, but but that what about the safety of the millions who go hungry every day? What about the safety of, of those who don't have a job, who don't have health insurance? They, these should all be considered safety issues. Uh, and I got an incredible response uh, to this uh, idea of thinking of it differently. And then I said to people, uh, next up, we're going to talk about, you know, what I and others call the prison industrial complex. And so you, Dan, are my first guest uh, to discuss what to do about prisons, about mass incarceration, about why we have more prisoners than any country in the world. And you probably know these stats better than I do, but it's a crazy statistic of if you if you combine so many countries, they still don't have what we have in one country. And not just in terms of actual numbers, because we're a big country. But even when we talk about the rate of incarceration, we're number one. We're the only industrialized country that has the death penalty. We're the only one that has life without parole. We're the only one that treats children, pr- prosecutes the children as adults. So it's like, I guess the first question I want to ask you is, and I know you're a historian and you've written history books about this, but but I also want to make sure we have the time to get to what we're going to do about it. But please give us, if you can, the uh, Cliff Notes version. <laughs> Sorry to put it that kind. I sound so, un- I am uneducated. I only, I only lasted a year at the University of Michigan. So don't, don't, don't hold it against me. But Dan, how did we get here? Yeah, well, you know, there, there's, we, we got here lots of ways, right? And I, and I think, there's some value in, in taking the long arc view of, of showing uh, that mass incarceration has its origins in, in slavery and in, in settler colonialism. Um, most of my work is focused on the 20th century and you asked for the cliff notes. And so I, 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 I hesitate to go back that far. Um, but, but I think really the, the prison system that this country has, has always been, Racist has always been, uh, uh, has always preyed on the poor and the working class, uh, and that has everything to do with the structure of this country from even before it was a country. Um, you know, when you look at Washington, is not an outlier in this regard, but just to use it as a, to me, local example, before Washington was a state, it had a prison. And, and so, right, you can see that prison is, wow. it becomes a really important form of. Of building the of building the country. Um, now, with with that said, even though you know the the U.S. has always had that kind of harsh discipline that, that you alluded to when you talk about the death penalty, when you talk about life without parole, um, when you talk about solitary confinement, um, there is also a rather remarkable speed at which we became the world's leading jailer. Right? And you said, you know, we're a big country. That's true, but 
proportionally, we're not that big, right? We're 5% of, of, the, of the world's population, but more than 20% of the world's prison population. And that, that is a phenomenon of the last half century. Uh, and, and that's pretty remarkable how, how quickly we could build so many prisons and lock up so many people. Well, you have, you have this stat in one of your books, I think, that since, just since 1970, our incarcerated population has increased by 700%. Yep. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's not just people, more people going to prison, but, but people staying in prison for longer. Um, and what's so remarkable is that, in a in a abysmal way, <laughs> um, is that you know 50 years ago, we had very profound and powerful movements among incarcerated people in this country, where you had people like George Jackson and Angela Davis, who remains a, a leading voice on these issues. You had people at Attica Prison in in New York, um, where that experienced a major uprising in 1971 look at the prison conditions at that time period and say it was a sign of incipient fascism. And at that time, there was about 200,000 people incarcerated. Today, there's more than 2.3 million. Wow. And this has yeah. everything to do with, with the embrace of neoliberalism and with attacks on the social movements of the 1960s and 70s, particularly the black freedom struggle. Right. And so now, today, again, according to the statistics here, one out of every three black males born today can expect to go to prison in his lifetime, as can one out of every six Latino boys, compared to one out of every 17 white boys. Those are just the facts. And I don't think this just happened accidentally. I mean, obviously, as you say, slavery, and we can go back that far, but all, all these other things that, that you've mentioned here, and it seems like, am I correct to say that to deal with the mass incarceration problem, as long as we still have a racial and a racist problem in this country, that there's no matter what we discuss now for the next 30 minutes, it can happen because unless we fix the racism, the institutional racism, how, am I, how are we going to propose anything if so many people want to keep the status quo, especially when it comes to race? Yeah, I mean, I think we really need to recognize that the prison system and the larger punishment apparatus of which it is a part is a central way through which racism is produced, maintained, and experienced. So, uh, you know, there, there's, no, there, there's no solving, quote-unquote, or addressing racism that is not premised on ending mass incarceration, uh, and there's no way to end mass incarceration that, that is not about, uh, that, that is not an anti-racist project. But I also want to say, you know, we have a lot of loud voices about, you know, promoting this kind of tough on crime, you know, border militarism and native, you know, there's lots of loud voices, you know, supporting just the, the, the worst, cruelest policies. But I don't know that that's necessarily the same as a majority, right? And when you think about the fact that not only are there 2.3 million people incarcerated on any given day in this country, but that there are 7 million under some form of correctional control, that there you know, are, are millions of people who have an incarcerated parent or other incarcerated loved one, yeah. that what we're really talking about is what my colleague David Stein and I have referred to as the criminalized majority. There is a constituency of incarcerated people, formerly incarcerated people, 
and and their loved ones who are demanding justice, right? Who are demanding uh, alternatives, and I think that that is a, a powerful constituency and a powerful majority in the making. You have pulled no punches in your writings and your teachings about this, in the sense that you are not a reformer. You are not in favor of putting a band-aid on this problem or thinking that. Well, let's see. We've got uh, you know two point three million behind bars today. Eh, let's lower that to one point five. You know that that's I've read your stuff, so this is not your position. And your yeah, position, yeah. your position is, and I'm uh, I'm sure some people uh, might recoil at it, but I I wanted to have you on so you could explain this because, and I didn't realize you also teach critical race theory at the University of Washington. So that that maybe you come back, and that's another hole because the crazy people <laughs> that are trying to turn that term into into some kind of whatever needs to be dealt with. Sure. But having said that, you favor essentially the abolition of our prison system the way that it exists today. Correct. When we're talking about prison, we're not talking about something that is separate from the rest of society. And so when we're talking about abolishing the prison system and abolishing the prison industrial complex, we're not talking about leaving everything else the same and just removing the the carceral control. Right, uh, I, I'm I'm a big uh, fan of the scholar and, and abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who says uh, that abolition is a presence. Right, it's it's not simply a a, a removal that it, that it's a building process. We're not talking about removing prisons and keeping everything else in society the same. The vast majority of people who are incarcerated are there not for what they did, but for who they were when they did it. You can look at, at, any, at any issue, at any crime, no matter how horrific, and you can find people who, have, who are sitting in the halls of power or who, who have access to the halls of power who have done that thing. Okay? So, so what mass incarceration is and what the prison system in general is, is a sort of sorting mechanism of deservingness, where deservingness is understood through race and class uh, and, and gender and sexuality and ability. So when we talk about abolition, yes, ab- we are talking about abolishing the, the, the prison system that exists in this country, but doing that, it, th- the way to do that is through full employment. The way to do that is through universal health care. The way to do that is to refuse criminalization as a response to social and political problems. And, and that means, absolutely, we need to let as many people out of prison as fast as possible, and we need to close institutions. And we need to recognize that that process is inherently committed to growing all the forms, all the in, in institutions and infrastructures that promote human creativity, collectivity, and safety. And that mm-hmm. as long as we have the world's biggest prison system, as long as we have you know, colonial armies calling themselves police forces, that, that those things are not just bad in and of themselves, but that they prevent us as a society from creating the, the infrastructures we need to keep us happy, healthy, and safe. Right. So the fact that we have so many people in prison is essentially indicates that we as a society have failed to take care of our own people. Because if 
everybody who wanted a job had one and were paid uh, a, a, a good, good wage, um, not just a minimum wage. If people, everybody was covered and nobody had any medical debt, you didn't have college debt, you didn't have all these debts that, that put you uh, in the minus column to where you might be tempted to do uh, something. If, if we just had a more loving society, if I can use that word, that that would in and of itself reduce the what we call crime or many of the crimes. And if we didn't treat mental illness as a crime or, or the adjuncts to mental illness, a drug and alcohol addiction, th- we'd have a whole different system here. That's right. And, and that's why you see so many people continually resort to criminalization as a cover for and an accelerant of authoritarianism, right? Because right. It, it's constantly that choice, right? I mean, it's sort of famously cast as socialism or barbarism, um, but it's constantly that choice of are we choosing to, to care for one another or are we choosing to, to divide the deserving from the undeserving, and, and are we choosing to, to create enemies and to punish them harshly? And for decades, right, and certainly, you know, even longer, <laughs> but certainly in the last five decades, um, those, those in power have repeatedly chose criminalization. And what the abolitionist tradition says is, is that that's wrong, <laughs> but also that it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, and I think in doing so, we certainly draw from, from the movement to abolish slavery in the 19th century, which, you know, wasn't talking about gradual emancipation. It wasn't talking about a little bit of slavery is okay. <laughs> it wasn't talking about, uh, about any of those sorts of, of kind of Band-Aid reforms, right? It was saying that, that, that the very institution is, is, a, is a toxin to humanity, Right. And, and needs to be eradicated. And, and we can see the same, same exact um, problem, right? The same, the same sort of issues with, um, with the punishment system. So when we talk about eradicating prisons, and I've always wanted to, whether it, was, whether it would be in a movie I'm filming or, or just on a day when I had nothing else to do, just want to get like a big bus or a van or something and, and go up to Sing Sing, or go to Jackson Prison in Michigan or whatever, just pull up and say, I'm just here to, to pick up everybody and, and set, <laughs> set them free, if you don't mind, um, and uh, just see what would happen. But you never know, I'm just saying. Sure. I, I, I'm, sure. a, I'm an optimist. So I'm, yeah. uh, but, but seriously, to, when, let's just deal with those who might be listening. Let's not give this too much time, but those who are listening right now who just heard us talking about abolishing and eradicating prisons and prisons as we know them, um, Right away, the knee starts to jerk, and they're like, wait a minute. Whoa. <laughs> and they're like, uh, you can't let, these are dangerous people. You can't just let them go. There must be some people that have to be locked up. What's your answer to people that have this kind of uh, visceral uh, antagonistic response to any discussion about that there's, when we want to talk about there's something wrong with a country that's got 2.3 million people behind bars? Yeah, well, the, the idea that, that prisons protect us from from bad guys seems to falter on the fact that we keep having bad guys. So if prisons would were there to, to keep us safe, then how can we keep having these specters of, of monsters who are who are out here to terrorize us? 
Um, like, why, why hasn't prison solved that? Here we have the most prisons, we have some of the meanest prisons that the world has ever known, and and yet we still have we still have these these sort of boogeymen that that are there, you know, just waiting for any opportunity to terrorize us. Right? The the very ar- argument relies on the fact that the prison system is failing to do its job, uh, and so so I so I think it, it it's a red herring. Right? And, I, and I think prisons continue to be this sort of mirage, uh, right? They, they sort of masquerade as a solution to, to harm when in fact they, they do nothing to prevent harm, right? The you right. Know, prisons and, and police are primarily reactive, right? They, they step in after, uh, you know, a, a crime has been committed and that crime may or may not involve harm, right? <laughs> I think abolitionists speak about harm versus crime because there's a lot of there's a lot of crime that isn't harm and there's a lot of harm that isn't crime right so but is uh, there any you know, is there anyone who should be locked up though is it in in in, in the abolition movement here um there you know i've mentioned this before on, on the podcast but i i um i have a relative who is a public defender and uh and she's a, a criminal appellate public defender so these these are people that are already in prison already been convicted and she's trying to get their sentence reduced or get get them out and i said to her she's done this for like 20 25 years i said how how of all your defendants all the your clients over these 25 years how many of you had she says oh jeez uh between myself and then the other person that's her law partner um 500 maybe i said okay of the 500 there must be a goodly number of them where even you thought to yourself even though you were defending them and you that was their right to have a defense attorney you must have thought seriously maybe this one we need to kind of put someplace uh maybe hide the key and she said i can answer that question um i'd say between mm, of the 500 between six and twelve I said, you mean six, not six, no, six. There have been maybe six, maybe half a dozen or more that I've met as my clients over these 25 years where I thought, okay, there's no hope, no help for this person. We must not be cruel to him, but we also can't have him walking amongst us. I was stunned to hear that it would be a, just a half a dozen. And what? And then what about the other 495? She said, <laughs> She said that this is what this is why I keep doing this because because they they have issues and they have problems that that don't involve you and I only to the extent that we as the society have refused to deal with it whether it's drug abuse alcohol abuse um, whether it's uh, uh, you know a whole bunch of mental health issues and if we dealt with that uh, then if we really got down to those six you know then we'd have to have a humane way to keep them separate. You know, um, if you have a serial rapist or, or whatever who's just not going to stop raping women, then you have to find a way to stop that, to interrupt it, but not in the cruel way that we do it. We, we don't become better people by being cruel to the people who are cruel to other people. Right. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the cruelty that exists is, is learned. So what are the ways that people are learning to be cruel? And it's often through institutions of cruelty themselves. So when you look at the modern prison abolition movement, you find a number of people who are involved in restorative and transformative justice, 
precisely to to develop the means of addressing harm that don't rely on on cruelty right so right. you know there there may be you know instances where where we have to say like this this person is a danger to others uh, right that that require consideration but our, we don't need to go to to prison and what prison is as the the means to resolve that right mm-hmm. and so when you look yeah. at organizations like common justice in new york city here is a restorative justice organization that um that works with people who have committed harm right who, who have been violent you know to, often to people who they know and and people people by and large don't want other people to go to prison they want harm to stop and and society has offered them prison as this as the stand-in for that yeah have you have you you yourself ever been a victim of crime uh i not not of a violent crime no not a violent crime i mean i think we've all had some form of larceny or burglary sure uh happen to us and you know i've i i hesitated wanting to call the police because what do i want okay so so my checkbook i just kept it in the drawer of my desk in the office and somebody went in there tore out a three or four checks in the middle of the checkbook yep. and wrote themselves uh like four one thousand dollar checks and cashed them yep. and um and they were caught because of course the banks have cameras and etc and i'm like okay i don't know i don't really my first thought is not uh how to prosecute them what i want i want my money back <laughs> That's yeah, exactly. I, I, or you stole my computer. Give me my computer back. Yeah, no, I, I, like I wish I still had my iPod that, <laughs> that right. stole. Right. I wish I had my bike that someone stole. Yes, and then and and then the second question is, why, why did they steal? The, if there's a reason they stole the money, right. maybe they're just yes. a kleptomaniac. I don't know, but there's either a mental health issue or there's a legitimate issue where they're broke. And in this case, in the office, it was the janitor. You know, and I'm like, okay. Either this place isn't paying them enough, or there's something else here that I want to try to fix. Um, but you know, it just seems like if we had a system that included a way for someone who makes a mistake to make restitution. Yes, exactly. And and this is this is the the guiding ethos of restorative justice and of transformative justice, right? Of, of people being being accountable for. Um, for for their actions, which also includes the the broader, you know, community or or society, which you know, we, typically people, you know, Daniel Sered, the director of Common Justice, likes to say people don't enter violence for the first time by causing it. Right. right. So so what are the steps that led people to that? Exactly, because I remember the prosecutor saying to me, "Well, you know, he's already spent your money and he has, doesn't have any money, so you you can't get your money back. So now what do you want to do?" And I said, well, I don't know. Maybe there's something. How about instead of it being something where he has to make restitution to me, that I do something that makes restitution to him? And I'm waiting for the you know the prosecutor to, to laugh at that. And I'm saying, so weren't we taught by the nuns? Didn't they teach us that we are not only to love our neighbor, but we are to do good to those who persecute us? Those are the words of the person we were claim to be following so maybe one of the solutions part of the solution here to this problem that's occurred 
um, is that maybe I need to do something to help him. And I don't mean necessarily write him a check, another check, a fifth check. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe, I don't know, you know, what if I tutored his kids once a month? What do they need help in school? What, what, you know, what, what else could I do uh, to, I know oh, people are listening to this, uh, Dan, and they're like, Mike, Mike, get a hold of yourself. But I am a hold of myself. And the, I want to live in the, I want to live in the world I want to live in. And in the world, that world looks like a place where we all are doing something to help each other. And if I can do something to help him or his family or whatever, then th- that is a form of restitution shouldn't be a one-way street is what I'm saying. Yes. But in order to create this better world, Dan, don't we have to take have some courage to do this differently? That, that's absolutely right. <laughs> and, and I really think that's what, um, what, what the abolitionist movement has always been about, right? A, 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 bold, <laughs> a, a bold demand for courage. Because right? I think that there's the flip side of this as well. What, you know, we're talking about crimes of, of desperation, crimes of need. Those are intimately related to what we might consider crimes of impunity, which, uh, you know, we, we, you gave the example of someone who stole, you know, $4,000 of checks. We have people that tank the whole economy, right? Who, where, you know, millions of people lost their homes, lost their jobs, and, and nothing happened, right? There was, there was, you know, I think one person went, went to jail for, for anything related to the 2007 financial crisis, mm-hmm. right? right? We have people who, um, you know, if I... A Muslim, it, a Muslim banker yeah, is the only right. one who went to, yeah. If, if I were to go out to my nearest water supply and, and poison it as an individual, I would go to prison. But when the managers of Flint, Michigan decide to to poison the, the local water supply. Yes, that they're they're not getting SWAT team raids kicking down their door. The the, the people who go to prison for these small crimes, right, or or even some some bigger but still interpersonal crimes, right, that that are you know the majority of people who are who are in prison, you know, quote unquote, did something. Um, but but it, but they what they 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 harmed another person right probably someone who they knew maybe even someone who they loved and yet we have people who who are harming thousands hundreds of thousands millions of people who are on the supreme court who are in the senate who for whom the who are former presidents for whom the thought of of any kind of criminal justice solution generally is beyond the pale and that's, and, and that's mass incarceration too, right? That sense of impunity for the entitled, right? That if, if your damage is massive enough on a scale that's grand enough, that you will be immune from any kind of encounter with, uh, with the criminal punishment system. So if we ab- abolish the prisons that we have now and create something new, um, what do we do with those people? Like, let's say we redefine crime and we treat corporate crime and white collar crime uh, not only, I wouldn't say equally to the to the street crimes and the crimes committed by the poor and the working poor, but I would actually think those are even worse crimes, the ones that are committed by the banks and by these companies. Uh, uh, do we, who favor upending and changing this prison system, do we favor not sending them to prison? Because, you know, in my heart of hearts, I really want to 
personally lock them, <laughs> lock them up. Uh, so, so what, how do we square that with what we say yeah. we believe? Does it apply also to the billionaire who has stolen from the American people? Yeah. So, you know, this, it's a, a great question. I think when we talk about when we talk about the world that abolitionists want, we're talking about a world where where those things don't exist, right? Right? Billionaires don't don't exist, and I think in 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 the moment, in in this moment now, as we're having this conversation and living in the world that we live in, I, you know, the the desire to seek vengeance against Jeff Bezos. I mean, I live in Seattle. You know, the, the desire for vengeance uh, against right. someone like Bezos can feel can feel very personal. But, but if Jeff Bezos is arrested tomorrow, my life doesn't change. My neighbor's life doesn't change. The people that I know who are incarcerated in Washington don't get out, mm. right? Right. What I want to have happen is for, for the conditions that created Bezos as the wealthiest supervillain of, of our time, um, or Elon Musk, right, or, or, any, or, or Bill Gates as the seemingly sort of beneficent version of this, like th- those people should not be allowed to to maintain the the power and and uh, hoard the resources that they have. That that's abolition, right? I you know Jeff Bezos the person like him being locked up in handcuffs or solitary confinement like that that actually does nothing for me, right? And even that idea of vengeance is is over in five seconds. Right now he's in prison. Okay, like so that, the, ab- that, the abolitionist, the right? The abolitionist solution to this then is first of all, as AOC says, uh, every billionaire is a policy failure. In other That's words, right. we we have failed in the way that we've set That's up right. our system that billionaires even exist. So yep. so that's maybe number one. Number two, when they do commit crimes against the people of the United States of America, we have ways for them to restore the damage they've done to make restitution to us and that the revenge part of us that might want to lock them up and throw away the key, as you said, doesn't really make our lives better tomorrow morning. So, but, but we do have to protect ourselves from them and they do have to make some sort of restitution for what they've done. Yep. Correct. That's absolutely right. And we need Jeff Bezos's money. All of it, right? <laughs> like he, he, he can live on the on the same you know salary I make as a university professor, or uh, or that a janitor at, at the elementary school down the street makes, or or whatever, right? He he can earn earn the wage that, that the rest of us earn. But part of the ways that he makes restitution is through not allowing him to to hoard the resources that he has hoarded and make the the policy that he has directly yeah, or indirectly yeah. helped make. Right? And that's the policy that's accelerating climate change. That's the policy that's blocking right. Right. living wage. That's blocking right. uh, rent control and affordable housing. Those are the things that keep us happy, healthy, and safe. Right? When you look at all the people who are not getting COVID vaccines because even though it, it's free, they, they think they have to pay for it. That is a deeply sick society right? Right. Where, right. where people aren't getting uh, you know, life-saving, potentially life-saving uh, vaccine because they're so conditioned that healthcare is a privilege and not a right. Let me, can I just, uh, just insert this for uh, Basil, our executive producer, and he's in the booth listening uh, to this. Let me just insert a line here uh, that we may need to use 
for anybody who's listening to this podcast later in 2021 or 2022, um, let me just, I'll have to, we'll, we'll insert this in, uh, later. Um, the comments made about Jeff Bezos by our guest were made before the rocket carrying he and his brother blew up. Um, so no ill will toward the deceased was intended as this was recorded prior to that sad event. Thank you. Um, now we're going to have to cut you laughing out of there because, you know, we don't want to. <laughs> Sorry. We're trying to be somewhat sincere here. <laughs> yes, um, I appreciate that. Yes, and you know the danger of speaking ill of the dead. Don't we need to spit three times or something? I don't know. <laughs> but, okay, but back to this because we're going to run out of time here. You know, I'm a big believer in redemption. I believe, I believe we all make mistakes. I believe there's a, there's a path, an easy path for all of us to either redeem ourselves, to make good on those to whom we've caused harm or, um, um, or those who we should have done more or better for. Um, you know, I, I, I think if our system had that attitude, that not only does the person who made the mistake can do things to redeem the moment, that they found themselves in, redeem themselves. But we can redeem ourselves. We who didn't commit the crime, we who just live in this society that have allowed this to go on like this, that that there has to be a redemptive moment for us too. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. And, and again, I think this is why the abolitionist emphasis on transformative justice is so powerful, right? Because... Again, the people who, who cause harm are not necessarily the same people who are going to prison for having caused harm, right? Right, right. And that there's lots of people who are causing harm, who are enabling harm, who never face any consequences for having done so. And that in and of itself is, is, is a, a, a moral wound in our society. And I think abolition speaks to the political and the economic foundations of, of mass incarceration, but it also speaks to that to that moral restoration, right? That sort of moral project yes. of what of what the world can be and what we can be for for and to each other in the world. I want to just play uh, twenty seconds of something that I think maybe uh, well it's indicative of what i think is going to be our biggest problem in trying to get our fellow americans to come along with us uh, on this and even though uh this was uh this appeared on tv some 30 33 years ago um a lot of this attitude i think remains with us uh, to this day um especially amongst white people but not just white people but a lot of white people this is from uh the presidential debate of 1988 between George H.W. Bush and the Democrat Michael Dukakis and Bernard Shaw of CNN had a question, first question, to ask Michael Dukakis. The first question goes to Governor Dukakis. You have two minutes to respond. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer. Okay, um, we're not. Gonna, I'm not going to play the two minutes of his answer. If you're old enough, you remember it. If you're too young, I'll just tell you that he hemmed and hawed for two minutes. Uh, and um, there was mu so much discussion about this; it, it contributed to his loss. But Dan, that attitude behind that question exists today. Um, how do we get our fellow Americans to overcome that? that kind of mentality 
You know, I think it begins by listening to people who are themselves survivors of harm, who who are holding up our 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 better angels. When we look at organizations like Survived and Punished, which is a, a, a grassroots campaign that works to free to, to support and free uh, women who have survived domestic violence, um, but who who have been incarcerated for self defense in, in the act of surviving violence. Um, when we look at at other organizations of currently and formerly incarcerated people, we see people who have been subject to to very serious, painful harm who are seeking justice and not retribution. You know, think about what's been happening over the last year and a half in prisons, right, where COVID has come in through the staff because there's no other way it could get in, but in institutions that where people are held too close together to be able to socially distance, uh, where the main form of protection that prison systems have to offer is through isolation and solitary confinement, and that all of that has happened in a context where people can't see their loved ones, have almost no other human contact, and are treated as disposable by, by the very system that is denying them all of these uh, aspects of human care and concern. And what we've seen repeatedly from incarcerated people during this pandemic is a call for rigorous public health. <laughs> it's a call for recognition that public health only works if it means everybody. So here are people who have been abandoned, who are, who are not seeking retribution or revenge, but who, who, who are seeking a chance for us to all save, save each other. And I think that, that's all we have, right? Because when you start to get into these revenge fantasies, the, there, there's, no, there's no end in sight, right? You, there's, some, there's always another enemy to seek revenge against. Yes, and we lower ourselves, and then we're down in that gutter, and we don't create a better world for our children and the people that are trying to survive and get by all, all of the, yeah, I just I've had just this idea while we've been talking. The way I want to change the, our policing is to create these uh, departments of public safety and compassion. And and I think the title I want to give this to to uh, as we uh, abolish and uh, and then come back with something else that is humane and just and 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 with love um, is to not have a department. I mean, sometimes it's called the Department of Corrections. Sometimes it's called the Department of Prisons. Um, you know, I would like us um, who favor the abolition of the current way to create a. Department of Restorative Justice and Redemption. What do you think of that? That sounds great. And I think when we, when we pair restorative justice with a Green New Deal, with full employment, with universal health care, with, with the decriminalization of drugs, I think that's what abolition is, right? It, it's it's the bringing together of these different kinds of of world making, right? Because full employment itself uh, isn't going to be enough as long as the prison system remains what it is. So we, we have to talk about getting people out, and and what that means getting getting people out is jobs, healthcare, community, food, a, fu- a, li- a livable future. 
Yes. So, so I think that Department of Restorative Justice is, is part of a panoply of, of kind of world making um, that we're engaged in. Yeah, I think when we say restorative justice, you just defined it. All of those elements, we have to have all wheels in motion on those various issues uh, to have what will be a more just society for everyone, especially for those who have the least. That has to be in our hearts. That has to be our commitment. This isn't working, as you said. We just keep locking up more people. This has to change. And uh, I hope you can come back on uh, another time. And I think we're going to have other people on in the coming months uh, to continue uh, discussing this. And I want to leave people with the people listening to this. Then what can they do? Because they're asking that right now. You know, we're wrapping up here and they're like, but Mike, you haven't told us what to do. We want to do something. Is there, is there anything we can do? So, and I'm sorry to throw that on you, Dan, in the last, you know, 20 seconds here. But, but what is that? What can the people who are listening to you and I right now, what is even a small thing to start with? What can they do to fix this? Yeah, well, I would really encourage people to check out organizations that are working on these issues where they live. Um, I, I think for that they can look at groups like Critical Resistance. Um, I mentioned Survived and Punished. There's been a series of um, efforts promoting decarceration at different states and, and cities around the country. I think groups like Detention Watch Network uh, are doing this work in the immigrant in the context of immigrant rights. Um, uh, the Prison Policy Initiative is a wonderful resource for people wanting to learn more. Uh, and then there's a series of mutual aid projects and networks that that I'm sure people can find uh, one near wherever they may live. And and uh, if you can read one or two of Dan's. Uh, books on this by Dan Berger, Rethinking the American Prison Movement that he co-authored with Toussaint Lossier, and uh, The Struggle Within, Prisons, Political Prisoners, and Mass Movements in the United States. I'll have some links here on my podcast page where you can just click and read uh, some of what uh, Dan has written. But Dan, thank you for coming on and being my first guest on this particular topic, and we're going to continue to talk about this because this can't go on. Police, as we know it, this can't go on, and prisons, as we know, this can't go on. And I think we can fix this. And, and Dan's right. One of the first things to do is, um, first of all, read up on it, learn, and then join a group. You don't have to do this alone. There are already groups that have formed. I'll put links on my page here so that you can click and join those groups and be part of this movement. People have been working on this for years, but I think in this particular year, I think there will be tremendous growth. Um, in the terms of the people joining, and I hope you listening can join. I will join, and I will do more podcasts on this issue. Dan Berger, thank you so much, uh, Professor at the University of Washington, the state of Washington. Uh, thank you for all the good work that you've done and will continue to do. Thanks so much for having me. I really look forward to seeing this conversation develop. Well, so glad to have Dan on, and uh, let's go with that, okay? The Department of Restorative Justice and Redemption. We are good people, my friends. In the majority of this country, they want a change. And that's you. You're part of that. I'm part of that. And we need to make these things happen. We can't just discuss them on the second anniversary of George Floyd's murder and the third anniversary and the fourth. You know how we do this? No. We need change now. And the majority of Americans know something is wrong with our prison system. We can't go on like this. 
It doesn't work. It has its roots in a racist society that we are changing and our young people are leading the way and we have to follow along and we have to do this. And I am going to do other episodes on this, on policing and on other issues regarding what we call criminal justice because rarely we talk about who the real criminals are. And those who commit what we call crimes oftentimes find themselves in desperate situations and we need to understand why that is and we need to prevent it not just punish. In fact, we should never be about punishing or seeking revenge. We just want to make it right. We just all want to live in a better world. We can do this. And I know you want to do it, and I want to do it, and that means it's going to get done. That's our attitude, right? So anyways, thank you, all of you who listened to this today. Thank you for all the wonderful letters regarding my uh, discussion, conversation with Anand Girdadars, uh who was with us uh, last weekend. Uh, it, uh, so much to think about and do. And um, I'm weirdly optimistic that we're going to do these things, my friends. There's so many of us that believe this. Do not be afraid of this noisy other side that, that wants to take us back to the dark ages, wants to bring back the former guy. Not going to happen if we stand up, if we're active, if we fight. We're gonna d- <laughs> we are in a different era. Those days are gone, and we're going to make sure they don't come back. And in fact, we're going to make sure things are going to get better now, next year's elections, etc., etc. So that's it for today. Thank you for joining me on Rumble with Michael Moore. I'm Michael Moore. My thanks to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, um, our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz, and everybody else who had any hand in today's episode. Thank you for uh, your support. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good weekend, be well, and don't forget to rumble. Take care. Well, if they freed me from this prison, if that railroad train was mine, I bet I'd move it on a little farther down the line, far from Folsom Prison. That's where I want to stay And I'd let that lonesome whistle Blow my blues away